Good morning, everyone. Can y'all hear me? Good morning, everyone. If y'all can hear me, say amen. Amen. All right. All right. That's taking me back. There. That. All right. Just want to start with some announcements here this morning. There is a handout going around. If you would, please put your name and uh, email address on this handout. Uh, they, there are some, uh, well, they, I should say that one's a sign-up sheet. There are some handouts back there at the door. If you didn't get one, please get one of those for next week. In our family news, uh, Tuesday morning ladies Bible class begins this week at 930 in the gathering room with a kickoff brunch. Family prayer concerns for this week, uh, Janie Gleaves, the wife of Ed Gleaves, uh, passed away on September the 13th. Frank Mayo, uh, the grandfather of Jennifer Young, passed away on September the 13th. Bonnie Morris, the mother of Michael uh, Gerlach, passed away on September the 10th. Praise for new babies, uh, Levi James Lister, was born September the 13th to David and Emily Lister, eight pounds and 12 ounces. And Ethan Thomas Bagley, the proud grandparents are Jim and Debbie Bagley, was born at eight pounds. Are there any uh, prayer concerns this morning? Yes, ma'am. My mother, Mary Williams, has pneumonia. Mary She'd Williams. She'd be really mad at me for saying that. Okay. But, um, yeah, she has pneumonia. All right. Anyone else? All right, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come this morning asking a special prayer for uh, Mary Williams, who's dealing with pneumonia. Father, we also pray that you be with the bereaved families, uh, the Gleaves, the Mayo, and the Morris family during the loss of their loved ones. Father, we know that death is a hard thing for each and every one of us to deal with. And Father, we just pray that you wrap your loving arms around each one of those families and help them to make it through this tough time. Father, we also come uh, thanking you for uh, the birth of uh, Levi Lister and Ethan Bagley. Father, we thank you for allowing them to come into this world uh, with uh, good health. And Father, we pray that you will just be with all of uh, the babies that were born. Uh, pray that they will uh, grow to be strong uh, human beings, Father. Father, we pray for this class. We pray that everyone who uh, has come here today has come with an open mind. And we pray that each and every one that's here is ready to move forwards and not just talk about this all-important subject. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I tried to shake everybody's hand this morning who came in. I didn't get to get to everybody. But for those of you all who don't know, my name is Robert Jackson. And I want to thank each and every one of you who were able to physically be here this morning. Um, your presence is very much appreciated. I also want to say that um, there will be some who will be listening to a podcast. We want them to know that we appreciate them, too, for their support. I want to share something with you all this morning before I get started. In case you didn't know, I am a black man. <laughs> In 1988, I was baptized into a racially segregated religious group known as the Churches of Christ. 
a racially segregated religious group known as the Churches of Christ. Now at seven years old, I had no idea about how ugly the history was. Historically speaking, I shouldn't be here right now because historically speaking, this racially segregated religious group did not want black men to be Bible scholars. You may be saying, well, Brother Jackson, you're painting with a, a broad paintbrush right now. Well, let me submit this to you. The white male leaders of this religiously, this um, racially segregated religious group started schools that my racial ancestors could not go to. The schools were supposed to be Christian schools that furthered the education of Christians, but black men weren't invited. This is my history. Even though these black men could not go to these schools, these black men were allowed to start. They were actually even funded to start their own church that was full of black people. So there you have it. An uneducated black man who is teaching black people Bible things and the only education that he has is what a white preacher told him. So what do you think happened to black churches of Christ over the years? There are still plenty of congregations out there to this point who actually preach from their pulpits that you, as a black man, do not have to know Greek and Hebrew in order to teach the word of God. That's true to a point. It is a very dangerous thing to put a man in a pulpit and he does not know what he's talking about. But this is what's being taught. You may say, well, Robert, I don't agree with you on that. Well, guess what? That was what I heard with my own two ears as a black man growing up in this racially segregated religious group known as the Churches of Christ. The white congregations that I grew up around thought that it was necessary for black men to be educated, but only educated by the approved men that they had set in place who would teach sound doctrine. They did not want us to go to colleges and universities. They didn't want us to go to seminaries because we may stray away from the truth. They don't teach sound doctrine at those colleges and universities. To my knowledge to this day, this racially segregated religious group known as the Churches of Christ still has yet to enroll, educate, and graduate a black female theologian from one of our schools. We have plenty of white female theologians, but I don't know of one black female theologian that has graduated from a Church of Christ school. 
prayers that that'll change one day too. Hopefully one day soon. So here's what we're dealing with. It's an honor to be here this morning. I'm thankful to God that he has allowed me, a black man, to go to a school who was founded in 1891, but the first black graduate did not graduate until 1968. I was always taught that we were the one true church. So why is it that we followed the lead of the government and not us? setting the example to the government. A black man who's going to a school to become a theologian, who's teaching a predominantly white class this morning at a predominantly white congregation that is a part of the racially segregated religious group known as the Churches of Christ. It is an honor for me to be here this morning because I am doing something that my religious ancestors did not have the opportunity to do, and that is to speak freely about the truth. They always had to repeat what was told to them because they didn't know any better. They did have a choice, yes, but they chose to do what was taught to them. <coughs> now, to this point, I may have said something that has already upset someone. It may have already um, made you uncomfortable, and that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what this class is for. Um, Brother Kev and I hope, hope that we will say something each and every week that will cause each and every one of us to think. You may be upset some days as far as being mad. You may cry about some of the things that we share with you. And we want you to know that that is a part of the process. That's part of healing. That is part of moving forward. There will be some stories shared in here by some of our brothers and sisters who are sitting in this class right now. And they will be sharing some of the ugliness that they have dealt with within this racially segregated religious group that we know as the Churches of Christ. <clears throat> so think. We pray that each and every one of you are ready to walk with us on this journey. So right now at this time, I'm going to invite my Friend, my brother, uh, my soon-to-be professor, <laughs> and my co-teacher for this class, Lee Kemp. Thank you, Robert. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, stand and sing the doxology and give thanks for what Robert has introduced us to. Pray together this way. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
One of the uh, one of the reasons that I'm grateful to do this class and grateful to do it with Robert is that I I grew up in a town that was 50% um, black, 50% white. As far as I know, we had almost zero other ethnicities or so-called races. Um, we were very aware of racial dynamics, and yet. As I have grown older, I've learned how still, nonetheless, blind I was to what was happening around me. When my, my first year at Lipscomb, my, a couple of my colleagues invited me into a small group, and one of the things we did in that small group was a genogram. And a genogram is a kind of, kind of common therapeutic counseling technique where you, you draw out pictures of relationships in your family, and, so you, and you describe the kind of relationships that there were between all the different people in the family, as well as you know. Did it on my side, did it on Laura's side, my wife's side of the family, back as far as, as far as I knew any stories about my family. And after I did that, my colleague John York said, can I make an observation? I said, sure. And he, he said, have you ever noticed? And then he described something about my family, about every generation in the storytelling I had done that I had never seen before. And I was kind of knocked over by this very basic observation about family dynamics that I had never seen before. And I, I couldn't have seen it unless I'd been willing to tell some stories and hear somebody else give me some feedback. That, in one way, is what it's been like for me in, in learning more about the history of race in the United States and in the South and in Alabama, where I, where I grew up. The last few years, David Fleer and I, one of my colleagues at Lipscomb, have done some trips to Alabama. Some of, some of you all from Otter Creek have been with us on some of those trips. And each time I go back, I've told people that when I, when I go do that, and when I go, for example, uh, 16th Street Baptist Church, uh, September 15, a few days ago, was the anniversary of the Sunday morning when um, these four little girls were getting ready for Sunday school, and a bomb went off. In the, under the steps and killed those four young girls. I grew up an hour away from there, and as far as I recollect, I have zero memory of ever having heard that story until I was in my 20s. Uh, one of the most famed bus bombings in the Freedom Rides happened on I-20. About uh, You can get on I-20 10 miles from my house, in Talladega, and you go a few more miles east toward Anniston, which is where the bombing occurred. <coughs> that happened the year I was born. As I recollect, I remember hearing no story ever told about that until I was in seminary about age 24. One of the things that tells me is that even though I thought I understood certain things about race, I began to realize how blind I was, really, to what was right in front of me and going on right around me. And the stories other people were having to deal with that I didn't have to deal with, that I didn't understand, that I didn't know. And so one of the, uh, one of the things that um, has been important about that for me is that I realized that through this kind of work, which is often uncomfortable, is I actually learn better who I am. And in my mind, these kinds of conversations and this kind of work is never about, um, well, I shouldn't say never about. The primary goal in my mind is not blame and culpability. The 
primary goal is one, seeking um, to facilitate freedom that's, right. that's full and bountiful for everybody at the table. And if people are not being allowed to the table, then make space at the table. Mm -hmm. And to be willing to listen and be willing to entertain the possibility that there might be all sorts of things going on around me to which I am simply blind mm -hmm. and have not been able to see or have been unable to hear. So in that, uh, in that regard, we've kind of laid out three major goals for the class. One is I'm going to lay out kind of theological, historical, and biblical resources for you to kind of understand better some of the history. Some of, some of you know lots of this history. Some of you may not know much of the history. We want to do some of that. We want to lay out uh, theological and biblical resources for reflection uh, that we hope will be helpful in reflecting upon these matters. But it's also, we want to try to make an education towards some action that is not simply, not simply talk. Um, as an educator, as an academic, of course, I get a little, I get a little frustrated when people will talk about mere talk. Um, but even, even, even the great activist and uh, wonderful woman, Dorothy Day, who founded the Catholic Worker Movement, she used to say, writing is doing. And indeed, writing is doing. But at the same time, we, we do want to avoid, nonetheless, kind of mere talk. And, and think in terms of what, what kind of inter, what kind of education can lead us to constructive action in the world. Uh, second thing then is to create a space for dialogue where we can have honest dialogue in here. I encourage you to consider, and we'll, we'll have some exercises and encourage you to talk about things, but I want to encourage you to take the chance on being honest in the kind of exercises that we do together. And um, I remember one time years ago, at the time I was pulpit minister at the Donaldson Church of Christ, and uh, in a class, uh, some people were talking about their fear about the spaces not being safe. And uh, a young woman who was a Muslim convert to Christianity came up to me after class, and she's very distressed, and she's very distraught. And she's angry. And she said, I feel anger when I hear people talk about their fear about being judged. And she said, for people to project a fear of being judged, they have already judged the people around them. And this was kind of a, a very humbling sort of observation she had made. And so I encourage you to consider the possibility of, um, until you have reason to otherwise, trust the people around you. you know, we've all got to make certain, at certain cases, after we have certain experiences, we've got to learn what the measures of trust are. But do you have reason not to trust people around you? Lean into trust and lean into vulnerability. And the third thing is uh, to encourage relationships across racial, so-called racial lines. I'll talk a little bit later about why I keep saying so-called. But encourage relationships across so-called racial lines. Uh, whether, it's, whether it's here in the, the small amount of, of racial diversity we have in our congregation, or whether it's in your workplace, in the community to uh, take opportunity, look for opportunity to facilitate relationship, to be open to relationship across kind of um, homogenous lines that many of us live in and live under. First thing we want to do, the first exercise I want to do today is, um, Robert's going to introduce us to in just a minute, but let, let me introduce the form of it first. It's something I've been trying in my classes. I, I like it. I hope that you'll like it. I hope that you'll find it helpful. 
and it's called the Think Pair Share. So if you will, hopefully everybody's got at least a piece of paper or something you can write on. So if you will, pull out a sheet of paper or pen, and if not, share around you. The first thing. And, and for, for the future, just make sure you bring something if you don't have anything today. The second, the second thing is this. I'm going to ask everybody to uh, pair up with someone. Pair up with one person, but I'm going to ask you not to pair up with your spouse. Or if you're with a, if you're with a best friend, not to pair up with the best friend. Okay, but instead pair up with. Uh, we're not saying that you can't know them, but uh, pair up with somebody around you uh, that's not a spouse and that's not a best friend uh, that you can have some sort of conversation with. Okay, so everybody quickly identify who that's going to be. question is, is what fears or questions, if any, arose for you in the experience of late around the killing of young black men by police that have been publicized in the media? What fears or questions, if any, arose for you in the experience, experiences of late around the killing of young black men by police that have been publicized in the media? Ready? Go to it. Let's go. So 90 seconds for you to jot down your own answer. First you jot down an answer, and then we'll invite you to talk to each other.
Okay, if you will, kind of share, give about one minute to share first person and a minute for the other person to share. only 
be really coming to light because now more people are being made aware of it. Well, my, my view is for my nephews and my granddaughters and my son. Um, maybe my and my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I fear now for you with your wife. <laughs> civil rights movement. Our house was right in the heart of the African American community. We were only like two miles from Bisbee, maybe four miles from Chesapeake Station. When they had the marches down Jefferson Street, we were one block from Jefferson Street. Dad said, you cannot march. You will not march. You will not allow to march. And I asked my dad, said, well, why won't you participate? And my dad just said, basically, he said, no, and he's, he was an elder in the church. He said, he didn't want to go to jail. He thought that somebody put his hands on him. He felt sure. He didn't want nobody to put his hands on us or him because he would be in prison. And that was just his philosophy of life. We were taught the Bible basically. He said that I'm not going to tell anybody to put their hands on me because I'm going to go and I'll, be, I'll, I'll die in the process. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's been my orientation. And that's a fear I have. I, I fear somebody may bother my kids because I'm going to be punished. share with Rachel was my fear is pretty much for my husband. Let me make sure. Can everybody hear okay? No. Okay. No. no. Little, Sorry. A little louder. <laughs> pretty much my fear is for my husband and for of course my our daughter. You know, seeing that they are killing our kids too. And that our kids can't play with a BB gun or a water gun. Things like that, you know, without getting hurt. But my main, most important fear is that if this continue, continues to go on, I fear and I pray that my heart doesn't change from love to complete hate of the Caucasian people. Because I don't want to allow myself to get to that point that I'm gonna hate somebody all because of the years of injustice on our people. I pray that that doesn't happen. And I pray that a lot of things change in this world. Well, I grew up in Memphis, didn't grow up. I lived in Memphis uh, during when Martin Luther King was killed there. And I was witness to all kinds of violence and, and uh, senseless acts of just cruelty. And I had a black woman who worked for, 
with me to kept my children while I worked, and I feared for her life when she uh, when she came to my house. But she wasn't afraid. But anyway, that's kind of off the point. I lived through place in places where there was a lot of violence around desegregation and around uh, uh, killings. Um, I lived in Charleston, Missouri when the school system was integrated and my husband was the coach at the high school and there, they had 24 state police cars surrounding the high school and there were people from the town who just, it, it was just a miracle that that whole thing didn't end in so many senseless killings. So what I fear now is that the amount of peace and reconciliation that does exist, which has come a long way from my perspective, I fear that these events will shatter that reconciliation that already exists and that we will return to um, a time of violence again, more violence. I have a, and this is a, politically correct and this is kind of awkward, but I'm just very cynical about it. Uh, part of the reason that I'm so cynical about what I see about these Black Lives Matter and white people's responses is because I grew up in a home where my grandmother talked about my great-grandfather. He was beaten so severely that he almost lost his eye. Today, my great-grandfather probably would have been a drug dealer or some sort of criminal because he lived on the fringes of the society, but he literally got whooped for nothing on his own in his own yard. And so I've always had a certain level of uh, fear, apprehension, disdain for police. But let me transition into the other part. Even though the deaths are incredibly depressing, problematic, and alarming, there's another part of this police treatment that we need to be concerned about. This is Andre Campbell. Andre Campbell is actually studying to be a theologian. It's funny that you were talking about this. <laughs> Thank you. But one thing about this is uh, Andre and I grew up in a neighborhood where when we were in our 20s. A lot of black men ended up getting in trouble. They was out there selling dope, doing their thing, right? So now, in the late 30s, early 40s, these guys got felonies. So, you know, I go to Lipscomb. Uh, Robert, you go to Lipscomb. But I, I have to have financial aid to go to Lipscomb, right? Because I don't have a lot of money. But hopefully, after I graduate, I'll be balling and have all <laughs> <laughs> But if you get a felony in this country, right now, you can't get federal financial aid. So what happens is, if the police pull you over, they got to kill you. Hey, just say you had a pistol and you shouldn't have had it. Just, hey, say you had some dope. And you go to a public defender, and the public defender's got 75 cases just like yours. Hey, man, you want to go home? You all want to go home? So you go home, but you got a felony hanging over your head. So you can't go to college. Hard to get a job. So what you going to do? There's an underground economy in the African-American community. Sell dope be involved in other fringe industries that have taken place. So when I think about this attitude of police and the system that we live in, I am not so much worried about getting killed. The Lord, please don't let the police put a gun out on me or nice thing, anything like that. But I'm much more concerned about being accused of a crime and I don't have the money to battle in the criminal justice system. Because if I catch a felony in this country right now, in this country, it's going to be hard for me to make it. And that's what I think is a conversation that we don't, we're not having in America either, which is the polarization and the criminalization of African-American men who are still alive. So. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
Uh, we, both of us had the same kind of almost reaction, and it was a bit retrospective. Is white males and supposed to grew up in the suburbs too, so white suburban in our little bubbles, and and we both sort of confessed and admitted our initial reaction to the Phoenix Six is uh, initial gut reaction is um, to side with the cops, and 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 there must be something more here that he's like he must have been doing something wrong. In, in, we usually we come to the conclusion after seeing multiple films and seeing that seeing that over and over but our initial gut reaction and in, in your workplace you saw this Justin, a lot of white people they're in it and, and this is a mission this is confession okay this is confession your mission your initial gut reaction because it's the way you're raised is there must be something else more to the story until you see it over and over and over and then obviously it becomes obvious but the initial gut reaction is Oh, the cops were right. There must be something more going on here. I'd like to tie those two comments together because I think they're very, very close to each other. Because there is, in a sense, there is more to the story when, in many of these cases, when the police pull over black drivers. Because in, in a large portion of those cases, they've got those felonies. They've got... Um, an outstanding warrant. They've got unpaid parking tickets. They're behind on child. They're, yeah, they're behind on yes. child support. And what the what I, I served on a grand jury about three years ago, and so when when I watched this, I'm thinking, how would that very diverse group of Nashvilleians have handled these kind of cases? And how in the world is it that none of them have come back with indictments? And one of the things that the police explain to us when, they, when they're making stops like this and they're making arrests, they're going through a checklist. They're going through a checklist of what raises the probability that this is gonna go south on them. And one of the things that does is, like you were talking about, if, if there's a felony, if there's delinquent child support, if there's you know, driving without a lot, those things all add up. By the time they get to the car, so they're already on edge yeah. for something for and, 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 it, and it has it has very little to do with what that person is doing at that point it has to do with how they look are they wearing a baseball cap yeah. because if they're wearing a baseball cap that raises the possibility depending on the team that they're in one of the local gangs are they behind on child support do they have a felony they know all of those things before the window rolls down and so, it, in a sense, there is more to that story, but that's, 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 that's what's going into the thought process when that window rolls down and you ask to see the license. Let's do, I think, can we go Walter, and then we need to kind of tie things up. I'll, I'll be quick, just to, you know, my main first question I wrote down is, you know, how is this 2016? that I have, which is more of a, more hope than fear is, fear that I have is we're one of the few churches in our country that's actually talking about this. We have lost even talking about this in our faith communities. I'll ask my students over and over and over, when have you heard Ferguson or uh, Trayvon Martin or any of those kinds of things mentioned in your churches? 
we just don't talk about those kinds of things. And we need to get people talking about those kinds of things. That's who we're called as God's people. I think, unfortunately, we've got, we've got like four or five people that are ready to talk, but we need to, everybody hold on to your stuff. And uh, we're gonna have a lot of opportunity to dialogue um, as we go. And as well, if you, um, did our email list get around to everybody that wants to? Let's pass this, then get on the other side, okay. Um, we'll have an opportunity to continue to communicate and talk about these things. And one, I wanna thank everybody for your participation thus far and your openness and willingness and honesty in that regard. And the, we got 13 weeks to explore lots of facets and hear lots of stories and we wanna to continue to make space for that and I'm grateful for that. Uh, next week, we are privileged to uh, have uh, Richard Hughes, one of my friends and now colleagues, and um, Richard's one of, one of the preeminent, if not the preeminent, um, historians in Churches of Christ. And at the table, hopefully everybody got a handout of a chapter from one of his books on uh, social justice and race in Churches of Christ. And so that's been provided for you to read for next week. And uh, so if you will, read that for next week, and then Richard will be here to present and talk, lead us in discussion about that um, next week. We'll also be communicating by email with you as we go. Let me uh, pray, and then we will uh, conclude for that. Oh, gracious God, giver of life and all manner of goodness, we thank you for the gifts of this day. We ask, O oh God, that you may help us to be mindful of the calling, as the Apostle Paul put it, of our ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation which is always grounded in truth, and truth wherever we find it, and in whatever ways it cuts across our preconceived assumptions or convictions or things we hold dear. We ask, O oh God, that you may help us to be a people that are open to hear the truth from wherever it might come to us, in whatever ways it might challenge us and that we might seek always to pay attention to the people around us, uh, to be a people of compassion and mercy and truth-telling and justice. We pray that you would bless us in this community uh, this fall, in this room. We pray that you would continue to bless us with a willingness to confess as we need to confess, to express frustration as we need to express frustration, to challenge assumptions as we need to challenge assumptions, to see no, as uh, Paul put it in Ephesians, to see no flesh and blood as the enemy, but the powers of hostility and the powers of darkness. And that you might help us to practice that long patience which sees no person as the enemy, but the various forms of delusion and hatred that infect us and afflict us. We give you thanks, and we pray together now as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, the Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.
brother. Thank you, man. Well done. Thank you. Great introduction. Really beautiful. Unfortunately, I'm going to be out of town the next three weeks. Uh-oh. Uh, it's going to be on podcast. One of the things that's, that's so difficult is the fact